Welcome back. Pastor Lars Hammer here from Lord of Grace. Welcome back to our little series here. Uh, let me adjust this on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, looking at some of his reflections on this idea he's beginning to form of a religionless Christianity. And he works on this idea as he's sitting in prison and he's sketching it out in letters that he's writing to his pastor friend, Eberhard Betge. And so this isn't a systematic, his ideas are never systematic. They're not written out in a uh, point by point beginning to end. He did have a plan for that, for a book. The book never got written. Uh, he was executed before that happened. But we're going to pick up again. Uh, this is the sixth episode. The other five are all on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, if you want to catch up, I try to make this not too cumulative because in a sense his thoughts aren't that cumulative. I will rehash points from time to time. So today we're going to pick up and we're going to start up just a little bit uh, where we left off last time. And just to recap, if you're kind of new or you're starting up here, Bonhoeffer is looking at the idea of secularism and a secular society and what does it mean to be Christian in a secular society. And I think, again, one of our biggest temptations in the church is to interpret secularism in kind of miss how deep and wide it goes. To think of it in terms of is there prayer in schools or creches on the post office lawn or uh, you know, are, are people going to church anymore? Are they just lazy and sleeping in? You know, those things are in many ways just more uh, symptoms of what is a much deeper change in the way people think and interact with the world. And if you don't look at it in a deeper way, I think it's hard to, it's hard to understand and it's easy to misdiagnose the problem. Uh, and Bonhoeffer gets at it, and what's amazing is he gets at this problem in the early 1940s, and it's, what he's writing about is still very relevant. So to, just to recap, what are we, are we talking about here in a secular world? We're talking about a world where the normal way of operating for people is to exist with no reference to God at all. So, whereas in the past, Everything that happened was a faith question. Everything was a God question. Uh, your crops had a lot, enough rain, God was blessing you with rain. Your crops didn't have rain, God must be punishing you, right? Uh, if a natural disaster happens, this must be God's wrath somehow, or if it doesn't happen, it's God's blessing. But in the ancient world, and up until, you know, I don't know, try to pick a date, but up until roughly the Enlightenment, so you're talking maybe 1700s or so, up until about that point in the West, pretty much everything that happened, people asked a faith question about it. Uh, if you got disease, if you had a disease, you know, was God punishing you? Uh, if it was cured, was it because you prayed enough? And so every time something happened, it was a God question. Well, now in the secular world, people don't ask the God question. Things happen, and the assumption is, because of modern science, the working hypothesis is that everything can be fixed to physics. That's kind of the phrase that uh, I was listening to a podcast, and a guy's in neuroscience, and he was trying to make the claim that we don't even have free will within our own minds because free will would imply that something is caused other by something other than physics, uh, to which another physicist replied, well, how, you, how can you sort of explain then 
how do you explain just looking at these neurons? Well, they got into that debate, but the argument was that the universe is all operated by physics. Every question ultimately has an answer in this universe. Everything operates without God. And while most of us are not physicists asking questions about whether our neurons determine us or not, we do go through life for the most part with a normal baseline as if God doesn't exist. And Bonhoeffer is wrestling with the way in which the church has sort of carved out a space for itself in lieu of this. So in the response to the world exists just fine without God, the response of a lot of these philosophers uh, and theologians was, well, yes, you may think the world goes along fine, but when things fall apart, that's where God comes in, or God comes in uh, outside our world, before our world, he created it after our world, after we die. So this is the secular problem, essentially, is how do you talk about God to a people in a world who go through life on a normal day as if there was no God, who even encounter difficult questions and don't ask about God, who may even have a personal tra hit a personal tragedy and don't think about questions of meaning, that they look for questions of physics or they just don't ask questions at all. And can the ch does the church have a place in people's lives? Can we continue to convey the gospel when, when people aren't looking for the gospel? So this is so sort of the deeper issue he's looking at. Uh, and again, I don't think most of us walk through our lives asking these sort of deep questions. And this is part of his critique, is that churches are sort of hoping that they can catch you. They'll catch you when you, you know, when your confidence in the order of things falls apart, uh, when, when there is tragedy or death or there's feelings of guilt. And he, and he takes that critique against the church, but he also picks up and goes against philosophers as well. So. Let's start, we'll start here on, I think it's slide number 20, and um, this, I'm going to reread what I read last week just to give enough context for the next one. So I'll move over here, we'll put that slide up, uh, and we'll reread this. This is some of his critique, pardon me, uh, I'm still overcoming a cold, so that's part of why I sound, why I do, and my nose itches like crazy, so sorry about that. All right, so here we go. Uh, of course, so he's writing, of course we now have the secularized offshoots of Christian theology, namely existentialist philosophy and the psychotherapists who demonstrate to secure, contented, and happy mankind that it is really unhappy and desperate and simply unwilling to admit that it is in a predicament about which it knows nothing and from which only they can rescue it. Wherever there is health, strength, security, simplicity, they sent luscious fruit to gnaw at or to lay their pernicious eggs in. They set themselves to drive people to inward despair, and then the game is in their hands. That is secularized Methodism. Okay. Interested, secularized uh, Methodism. So, uh, what, is, what is he talking about here? What is he talking about? I got my notes here. 
Um, he's essentially accusing psychotherapists and existentialist philosophers of doing the same thing that those Christian theologians were doing, which is essentially creating a problem to make themselves necessary. So if somebody's happy, their job is to find that inner darkness that you just haven't admitted, right? If you, if you think life is going on fine and you're not asking big questions about the meaning of life and death and the purpose of existence, their job, they see it, is to sort of knock you off your smug, contented place so that you understand how dark it really is. And again, this is kind of interesting because Bonhoeffer's father was a therapist and a psychologist, but the psychology in Europe in the 40s was so very heavily influenced by Freud and this idea of we're always going to pry open to find whatever you repressed and we're going to find that darkness that in, is in you and it really is in you. And so every little bump and inconvenience along the road, they're, they're probably somewhere under there is, you know, some deeper, darker desire and we're going to find it. And so that's what he's sort of accusing the therapists of. And on the other side, he's going after the existentialist philosophers who most of us never read. Uh, and, you know, they sit there and they ponder, what does it mean to live in a world where I know I'm going to die? And most of us, again, don't, we don't sit around and wonder, what am I going to do if I'm going to die? We, no, we don't ask that question. And I think if you went out on the street and you asked people, uh, you, you'd probably get not very thought-out answers. Oh, I don't know, I guess something happens, I'll die, I don't know, I'll figure it out later. You know, people aren't walking around worrying about these things, right? And so what the theologians were doing is they're saying, if people aren't worried about these things, and they need to worry about these things to think about God, then we're going to knock them off their happiness. We're, we're going to ruin their happiness and, and, and spoil their uh, confidence and rattle their sense of security so that they will see the need for God, right? Um, and in the same way, Bonhoeffer saying the philosophers are doing that too, uh, as well as the psychotherapists. They're sort of trying to knock you out of that happiness that you think you have. Um, and, uh, and essentially, he's saying it's kind of unethical. It's really unethical and we shouldn't be doing it. All right, well, let's get on with the next, let's move on to the next slide. So that, that one I kind of covered a little bit last time. Uh, and we'll pick up again uh, and we'll look at the next one. Uh, all right, here we go. <coughs> Excuse me. And whom does it touch? A small number of intellectuals, of degenerates, of people who regard themselves as the most important thing in the world and who therefore like to busy themselves with themselves. The ordinary man who spends his everyday life at work and with his family, and of course with all kinds of diversions, is not affected. He has neither the time nor the inclination to concern himself with his existential despair <coughs> or to regard his perhaps modest share of happiness as a trial, a trouble, or a calamity. <coughs> All right. This is an elaboration of what he said before. And, you know, again, it is kind of interesting because Bonhoeffer himself is very intellectual, very schooled in philosophy. And as you read through his letters from prison, his reading list 
uh, it's, it's not Harry Potter type stuff this guy's reading. I mean, he'll, he, he sits and reads these obscure philosophers while sitting in prison. Now, he's got lots of time to do it. But, you know, he comes from that intellectual background. So he isn't against intellectualism or learning per se, but he's calling out kind of a trend that's happened. Uh, all right, so whom does it touch, right? Well, he's saying that essentially all this existentialist philosophy stuff really is just an intellectual question posed by intellectuals who have time to ask that question. And of course, it's interesting, he says, intellectuals of degenerates. So is he saying that intellectuals are all degenerates or is he only saying that it touches the degenerate intellectuals? I'd have to dig a little bit more into the German to find out exactly how the grammar of that works. The translation is kind of interesting to me. But, um, and then he says, people who regard themselves as the most important thing in the world, right? And, and I do think, you know, there is always a little bit of a danger in intellectualism of uh, becoming a little detached from realistic concerns. I get that. Um, there's also, I suppose, the possibility that, you know, if you're the person that's living that examined life, you know, and you've reflected on all these questions of meaning, to sit there and go into the bar and worry about whether the Vikings are going to win the playoffs this season might seem kind of shallow, right? But the danger is that you're going to come across like a snob, right? And, or start to actually think that you're better than those people who are talking about the Vikings when they really need to be thinking about their being unto death, you know? Um, and so, yes, that's definitely a danger. Uh, and I think he's just pointing out an extreme that probably was predominant in Germany at his time. And, um, but again, he's talking about this, right? The ordinary guy, what is he worried about? His work, his family, his hobbies. And he isn't interested, isn't even interested in asking questions about being unto death. He's not worried about the nature of his existence. He's just going through life. And that these philosophers are trying to sort of spoil their fun uh, and try to, again, break open you know, their safety and security so that they can have the answer to the pain that's in there. All right, uh, let's see. One of the things, oh, this is an interesting thing. I got my notes here. Um, I, I got to thinking about, when I was looking at this, George Orwell's 1984. And I finally, finally sat down and read it. I read it, I don't know, it never was assigned to me in English class. But I sat down and read 1984, and in the power structure that George Orwell envisions in this imaginary world is you have the party, and there's some sort of inner circle at the top of the party that's kind of secretive, and you don't know exactly who they are. And then there's the people who are in the party, and the people in the party are the ones being watched all the time. And in 1984, they're watched through their TVs, which are put up in every room all around. And if you, of course, if you try to hide out of view of the TV, that means that you're hiding. So the, there's the people in the party who are watched all the time, and then there's this huge mass of other people called proles. And he has some comment where he says, along the lines of, and this isn't an exact quote, but that he doesn't, the party doesn't need to monitor the proles all the time. They just need to give them work, enough food, and football. And as long as they can watch their football and Orwell's English, so you, you got to think you know, this is soccer, right? But his argument is as long as they have 
as long as they have something to do and, you know, uh, their professional sports to sit and entertain themselves with, they're happy. They don't need to be spied on, which is kind of an interesting thought. The people who need to be spied on are the people in the, par in the party who have just enough knowledge that they could be dangerous. Um, the ordinary guy on the street, they don't worry about that. Oh, I think alcohol, too. There was alcohol. So when one of the guys in the party gets arrested, he gets thrown into jail, and it's full of all these drunk proles because they're, the party keeps them drunk all the time, again, so that they're busy having drunken brawls instead of asking questions about who really is in control of my life. Uh, and it was just kind of an interesting thing, and, I, you know, is it, a, is it a manipulation or is it just the reality that most of us would get one life in this world and we would rather not spend our time thinking about death, uh, and we would be happy enjoying our time? Do I think that there's a value in examining? Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, but I don't think it is right to also try to to try to create a problem to create a solution. I think there's something really unethical about that, and it shows that your solution isn't really that needed. So again, where does Christianity fit in? You know, if people are basically contented with their beer and their Vikings games, then, then, then what, what, what are we doing? Where do we fit in? Well, the church has to stop trying to be the fit in in the, bat, in the darkness, in the empty spaces, we have to start being something that adds value to life, right? We have to be something that increases pleasure, increases happiness, increases one's enjoyment. If somebody's going to wake up on a Sunday morning and get off the couch and get, it, get dressed and get into that car and get to church, there has to be a sense in which there's a value to doing that that's greater than sitting at home. And people will do an awful lot of stuff, even things that involve a lot of work, if they think there's a value to it, right? And so you've tended to get a couple responses to this. One is the prosperity gospel, which says, oh, we'll add value to your life. In a, we'll add cash value to your life. If you have faith, you know, and I will give you steps to follow, follow these steps, you will literally have more cash in your life. Look at Joel Osteen. Look at all the cash he has in his life. Uh, it works, right? So that, that the prosperity gospel, in essence, is kind of trying to answer the secularism question. You know, prosperity gospel doesn't try to deal with how God is present in despair. The prosperity gospel is very simple. You'll get stuff. Well, who doesn't want to get stuff? I think another response is often Pentecostalism. And I think I mentioned this before, but the idea that when I come to worship, there's a real powerful experience of joy and the Spirit. Not to say that uh, one does not experience that in traditional worship. I always hate that critique. But I think the idea of it, again, is I go and I have this experience that adds to my life, right? And nothing is taken away. It's only added, and it's an experience here, and it gives me joy here. And I think even those of us who've gone through traditional worship in probably more quiet ways, but would say that we're here because we've experienced something that does add value to our lives. And so we need to get away from this trying to connect with in the negative, trying to be the solution to the problem. Uh, one of the examples of that that I was thinking of is the way back in the 90s, the, the phrase that I kept hearing in church growth circles was felt needs. You needed to find out what people's felt needs were. What do they need? What do they feel they need? 
right? That's how marketing goes. I may need something, but if I don't feel like I need it, I'm not going to go out and buy it. I, what, what I'm going to actually make the decision to buy is going to be based on what I feel like I need. And so, uh, so there were mega churches that would hire people whose only job was to analyze felt needs. And then they would design the sermon series around the felt needs. People feel a need for, you know, better marriages. All right, here's a sermon series on better marriages. People feel a need for um, knowledge of how to uh, expand their portfolios. I don't know. How to achieve your dreams. Whatever the felt need was. But underneath it all was still sort of a sense of finding Finding what's missing, finding the missing piece, finding the opening, finding the lack that they don't have. Uh, one of the things, this was always uh, with youth ministry, that this became kind of a thing for a while, was to figure out, you know, what is, the, what is the need that parents are feeling? And so they would do polls, and often the parents would write back, would answer back what is on every parent's mind, which is the parent's worries. Right? Well, what is a parent worry? What, is, what do parents with teenagers worry about? What is their felt need? I want my kids to not get involved with a bad crowd and end up going down the, the path of sex, drugs, rock and roll, and getting strung out and dropping out of school and not succeeding in life because they have these friends who just use drugs and sleep around all the time. And that is an angst that is very prevalent in a lot of parents today. Uh, church going or not church going, right? The, the, this idea that school is full of all these bad influences. I, I kind of find it interesting that it was, when they started asking, it was boomer parents who started saying that. And I kept thinking, who was the generation that really pioneered sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Oh, that's right. It was the baby boomers worried about their kids doing the very things that they used to do, I think is part of it. But, the idea with the youth group was to then tap into that need. So instead of using theological language to talk about how we were going to, you know, inspire youth to a deeper relationship with Christ, not that that wasn't there, but in order to try to connect with that felt need, to try to be the answer to that angst, uh, church, youth, church youth groups, in their worst case scenario, would put a real heavy focus on sober living, abstinence, uh, purity, and they would push these things really hard because the parents were hoping that the, if the church pushed those values, that would be a sort of counterbalance to all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that they were getting at school. And so, but of course, what happens when, you know, you go through high school and once a week or every other week, you know, you're being told don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have drugs, don't have drugs, don't have drugs, don't have drugs. And they're pounding that message into you. What is the message you get? Church is about depriving yourself of things that feel good because the church doesn't want you to, your parents don't want you to do that. So then religion becomes about denying pleasure. And what starts as a fairly well-intentioned idea that we should have better values than just sort of impulsive indulgence. And, you know, I'm a parent of five kids. Uh, I don't want my kids hanging out with drug dealers or dropping out of school or getting strung out. I think there are other ways to influence values and to teach values 
that don't involve prohibition, right? That don't involve the don't, 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 don't. I tend to be kind of a believer that if they're focused on more positive things, they're less likely to get into that, right? If they have a dream of being a chemical scientist one day, uh, hanging out, you know, behind the food city and getting lit up every afternoon is going to be seen as an impediment to that, right? Um, so wise choices will tend to be made if there's a better sense of a future, if there's something else that's valued about themselves. But anyways, without going into too much depth on that, I do worry that a lot of kids get out of youth group and that's their impression of what religion is. It's about, again, depriving yourself of good things in life. So what do they do then? They've been told no, 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 no. They go off to college and they can, they can indulge in a lot of these things they were told not to do. And, you know, between antibiotics and uh, visits to the clinic, there's not really that many uh, consequences to all the sleeping around they were told not to do. And, you know, the STDs don't even kill you anymore. They can all be treated and at least suppressed. And so then they go, well, okay, I did everything I was told not to do. The world didn't collapse. I'm having more fun and more enjoyment without being in church. And when I look over at the kids at the college, at the college, at the college church group, they all look repressed, stuffy, like they're not having any fun. I don't want to join that group, right? So again, we've continued by trying to connect in the negative. We've ended up giving an impression that that's what church is, that it's about the negative, the giving up, when it should be, what we should be teaching kids is how much better your life is with Christ, how much better your life is following Christ, ways that we can have joy and pleasure that aren't necessarily just casual indulgence, uh, but to show an alternative vision that makes life more, not about suppressing and holding it in for a future reward. Uh, and so anyways, that's, that's kind of my, my youth group pontification there. Um, we'll, let's, get on, let's get on with the next one. Let's get on with the next one. Speaking of youth, go on the next slide. Uh, and it's number 22 here. The attack. Are we, are we got the slide up? All right, here we go. The attack by Christian apologetic on the adulthood of the world. I consider to be in the first place pointless, in the second place ignoble, and in the third place unchristian. Pointless because it seems to me like an attempt to put a grown-up man back into adolescence, i.e., to make him dependent on things on which he is, in fact, no longer dependent, and thrusting him into problems that are, in fact, no longer problems to him. Ignoble because it attempts, amounts to an attempt to exploit man's weakness for purposes that are alien to him and to which he has not freely assented. Unchristian because it confuses Christ with one particular stage in man's religiousness with a human law. More about this later. Okay, he doesn't get around to the, the later. Uh, he doesn't end up having the time, particularly on the law issue. But okay, <coughs> let's go back. Bonhoeffer is equating this idea of faith as um, filling in the need in your lacks uh, with a level of immaturity. Right? Because when we are babies, when we, come, when we come out, we're babies. We are totally needy. We can do nothing by ourselves. And the point is that as we grow 
and we get older, we do more and more for ourselves. And that's what we do with our kids. We give them a little more responsibility, a little more freedom bit by bit, so that as they get older, they will be adults. And what do adults do? Adults do things by themselves. They get themselves to work. They pay their own bills. They schedule their own doctor's appointments. That's part of being an adult is a degree of self-sufficiency and not neediness, right? If Christianity is all about being there in that neediness, filling that need, then what he's saying is that kind of Christianity is about keeping people immature. Instead of giving them tools to live independently, you're keeping them dependent so that they stay dependent on you. Uh, that's a pretty stinging indictment. I, I like to think, I, I really like to think that's not what I'm doing. Uh, I've said many times in my sermon, I, I, I'll look out in, the, in this room here and I'll say, you know, look, my job isn't, isn't to sort of keep you, how should I say that? I, I'd word it the other way. I say, you know, what I want you to do is to be strong, resilient Christians uh, who are able to deal with issues and struggles yourselves, who can have the kind of a faith that can ask questions and maybe not even have an answer because that's part of what adulthood is, right? Being able to accept responsibility for what you do and don't do and what you know and don't know. And I think an adult, a very adult mature response to things is to be able to say, uh, either I did wrong or I don't know. And, I, and to say, I want you to be mature, resilient, strong Christians, you know, not needy. I don't say not needy, but that's kind of the subtext. Uh, again, I think in a cynical context, a church tries to keep people needy so they keep coming back. And that's what Bonhoeffer is talking about, that, that this whole idea of God being about the lack you have to keep people lacking. You have to keep them dependent, you know, in a sort of immature state. And, you know, that's always one of the atheist critiques, right? Uh, I'm more mature. I handle reality. I don't need a crutch. You know, I don't need to rely on anything. I mean, we all know that our lives are not, we are not perfectly self-reliant. Nobody is. But that's the critique. When you make it, when you try to make religion a crutch, you're complying, you're, you're doing what, they, what, what their criticism is. Um, and uh, so what does it say? He's thrusting him into, there we go, thrusting him into problems that are no longer problems to him. I don't know how many of you ever had a Kirby guy come by your door to sell you Kirby vacuums. Uh, those things are like $1,000 vacuums. And they're stainless steel. That all I can think of when I see them is they remind me of the things my elementary school janitors in the 70s used to use. These just gargantuan industrial things. Well, we had a Kirby guy came by my house, oh gosh, 17 years ago maybe, and I had just bought this new area rug at Lowe's, and he offered to clean my rug for free. And um, so he comes in, and he's, of course, trying to sell me this super expensive vacuum. And I'm perfectly contented with my cheap store vacuum. You know, half my house is tile. I don't really need a ton of vacuuming. Uh, and then he, but he has this book. And part of his pitch is to create a sense of urgency in me and uh, make me think 
that, the, that what I'm doing now isn't sufficient so that I will need his vacuum. So what does he do? He has this book and he flips it open and he says, Have you, do you know about dust mites? And he shows this super magnified picture of this dust mite. And admittedly, they are really ugly looking things. And they got big, you know, claws and, they, and you know, and, 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 it's like, and if you weren't somebody familiar with this, it, it would be kind of scary. Like, oh my gosh, those things. And he's like, yes, they're all over your bed and they come off your body and they live in your, your, your carpet. And you'd be like, oh my God, oh no, oh no, I got these living things chomping at me all day long. You want to know something? It doesn't matter what you do. Living things are chomping at you all day long, all the time, no matter what. That's how our world works. Every one of your little pores has uh, a little microscopic lobster-looking crustacean chomping at the oil on your skin. It's just how it is. It's the way our world works. But if you didn't know that, now you'd be nervous. And I'm like, well, I, I'm not too worried about dust mites. I said, I know they're natural. And then he says, well, yeah, but you know, they, they, they create all that dead skin it sheds. And it contributes to asthma. I'm like, asthma? Oh my God, uh, you know. And, and what is he doing? He's telling you if you don't buy a Kirby, the bugs are gonna eat your children and, ca and, and ca cause them asthma. Oh, oh my gosh, I better buy a Kirby now. You know, give me a break. You're trying to create a problem so that you can sell me the solution because you know perfectly well that nobody in an ordinary house needs a gigantic industrial vacuum. That, that you're selling something they don't feel like they need. And so because you are, you have to try to create that urgency. I like to think that I as a pastor am not doing that. That I'm not running around trying to scare people uh, or to always bring up what's lacking or missing or the struggles in life or the, you know, so that I can fill that need and they can be dependent on me emotionally. You know, I, I don't want people, I want people feeling, becoming mature enough that they can survive without me. Uh, I don't want you needing me in that way. Uh, I'm happy to help in any way I can, but I want you to be mature and independent. And but boy, I can tell you the, the appeal, because if you can, can kind of latch on to that dynamic, if you can find someone who's really emotionally empty and lonely and needy, and you can pour that validation in, you know, you can kind of hook them. It's a very unhealthy relationship, but relationship experts will tell you this, right? When you get in with someone, you know, if one person is sort of the savior and the other person is the one being saved, What's going to end up happening? If the one being saved matures, then they don't need you anymore. And so hence you got that Human League song from the 80s, you know, Don't You Want Me, right? That song always creeped me out. I always thought the guy was so creepy, right? You were working as a waitress, and I brought you out, and I got you on your feet. Look at all these things I did for you, and now you're going to leave me? And I was like, dude, let her go. You sound like a creepy, possessive stalker guy. Um, and then she responds with basically, thanks for what you did, but I'm going to live my own life now. And, you know, that dynamic of the Savior and the saved can be kind of unhealthy in relationships, and I think it can be unhealthy in religion. 
Uh, if religion is always about trying to make sure that, you're that you don't ever get to that level of independence where you feel like you don't need it, or if you're afraid that if you, you get people to a place of maturity and independence, that that'll put you out of business, then you need to go back and rethink, maybe what I'm doing isn't adding value to their lives, but trying to take away their value so that I can fill in that hole, right? So to get back to it, what we should be doing is trying to add life. And again, that's what he says right here, right? Unchristian because it confuses Christ with a particular state in man's religiousness. And then he goes on to human law. I, he doesn't elaborate on what he means by the human law in this situation. Uh, so we will, and so um, I think that's about all I got, I think, today uh, here with this. Uh, if you um, have any questions about that or anything you want to message me about, feel free. Uh, if, and... Um, you know, uh, feel free to leave a comment or just get in touch with me. Don't be a troll as always, but otherwise I'll be back next week. Next week we're going to talk about redemption. Uh, what does it mean to be redeemed? And Bonhoeffer is going to go dig right into that concept as well, which has been one of these church, uh, big important church theological ideas. And that'll get us into sacrifice and atonement and some of these more, much more heady things. But uh, again, all of this series is much more heady things. I hope I've helped explain some of it to you and help make more sense. So anyways, uh, have a great week. I will see you next week and God bless.